All right, thank you so much, Alex and your crew. Um, we are in week four of this series called Focus, Focus. And I cannot tell you how important it is, according to the teaching of Jesus, that we focus on things that are good and right and healthy. Because what we focus on determines the course of our entire life. I mean, I've been working with people from all ages and what they focus on, where their heads are, where their hearts are, where their values and priorities are, where their focus is determines the course of their entire life. And so this is a critically important series. Because for a lot of us, and I would say especially coming out of the few years that we've come out of, and in some respects we're still in, there's a lot of stress. There are anxieties, there are traumas that we've gone through, local traumas, national traumas, global traumas, and it does something to us, right? So sometimes we have to get refocused. And that's what Jesus calls us to primarily in the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous sermons. A lot of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, get your eyes here. Get your eyes focused. Get your head here. Get your head focused. Get your heart here. Get your heart focused. And if we can walk with Jesus to focus our lives, we, as Jesus says, are going to live lives full of light. Here's what he says. It's a theme verse of our entire series. When your eye or your focus is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye or your focus is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And so the invitation from the Sermon on the Mount and many other places in Scripture is, hey, let's focus well and live lives filled with lights. Had a big moment last week. Last Tuesday, I was uh, speaking at an event and um, a pretty good-sized crowd. I, I knew a bunch of them for, from the last you know, 10 or 15 years of uh, working together, and I uh, did this, this little thing, and, and um, I was going to read from a magazine. I knew there was a point in this deal. I was going to read some statistics from a magazine. I knew that the statistics part of the magazine was going to be very fine print. I didn't know the, the lighting, which was going to be very important here, and also the time of day in terms of whether I would be able to read that magazine with my natural eyes. Took the magazine out. I did one of these old people things. This, this isn't going to do it. So in preparation, I took, for the first time ever in public, I took out my readers, which since have been private. No one has ever seen these, except for my wife. And as soon as she sees me, she makes fun of me. I had to take them out for this message, and I put them on for the very first time publicly, and I read this thing. And I'm telling you, it was the weirdest feeling. And there was applause, because I, I did what I did just now. First time ever coming out in public but I had to focus, I had to use a tool to focus, otherwise I wouldn't be able to focus. And this Sermon on the Mount is the tool that Jesus gives us that says, listen, focus here, focus here. You can focus on all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff out there in the world, all kinds of stuff in your head, all kinds of stuff in your heart, but Jesus says, listen, focus here. Sermon on the Mount is like a pair of glasses. Put them on and focus, put them on and focus. Of course, after this uh, Tuesday meeting, I get a whole bunch of people coming up and say, oh, hey, that's why I use trifolds and use these and use these. And I got 2.5 times magnet. I, I, get out of here. I'm, I don't want this anymore. <laughs> right? But um, I'm fully here. So we're talking about focus, primarily using the Sermon on the Mount. Weeks ago when we started, we talked about how to focus on the good, not necessarily being purely pessimistic or purely optimistic, but in wisdom, finding a way to focus on the good. Even as Megan and Evan said earlier, even when things are not going so well, to see the good, to see God's good, no matter what the circumstances are. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about focusing on the present. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't live in the regrets of the past that you can't do anything about. Don't live in the worry of the future that isn't even here yet. 
Enjoy the here and now. Enjoy the present. Last week, Carissa led us through an incredible message about living in the curiosity and the openness of focusing like a child, the heart of a child. And this week, we're gonna focus on the one thing that Jesus says needs your absolute attention. Jesus says there is one thing that needs your focus above all else. It's out of Matthew 6, Seek first, some of you lifers are gonna be able to finish. Seek first what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Some of you who aren't lifers are gonna say kingdom. Jesus wants us to focus on kingdom. What is that? When we think of kingdom, we might have all kinds of things in our heads. And, and if Jesus says, hey, this is the one thing I want you to focus on the most, why would he use the word kingdom? So here it is, Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God, of God above all else. This is what I want you to focus on. Seek this with all your heart, the kingdom of God. Aligning your thinking and your actions with the values of God and you'll have everything you need. Focus on the kingdom of God. Now, when I think of kingdom, and I'm a little bit of a student of history, you know, we have a school around here, and so uh, we have to keep track of all kinds of subjects, and so history is a big deal, and I love reading history. When I think of kingdom, my head goes to these big global empires that are led by monarchs, right? That's the image that comes into my head when I think about kingdom. I think about a kingdom like the uh, British Empire, right? And they exalt their, their queen, their monarch, and all the flags of all the nations that they have conquered, right? And they put their culture and their symbols and, and, and their, their ways imposed upon people that they have conquered. And all of these uniformed, armed, you know, men of war that are going after and conquering other lands. When I think of kingdom, that's what I think about. Empire, monarchs, power, wealth, conquest, subjugation, war, this feeling of cultural superiority. I mean, that's what happens with kingdoms and empires is we are superior people. And our God or the gods have uniquely blessed our culture. And so we are going to go to war with people we deem to be lesser cultures. And we are gonna violently overtake them and subjugate them and perhaps even enslave them. And we are gonna force our superior culture upon them. I mean, that basically is global history. And in some respects, that idea of kingdom is within us. Even though we live in the United States of America, a land that is free, we do not thankfully have monarchs. We don't have the sense of conquesting empire. But there is this sense within each one of us that, you know, empire isn't half bad. What if I was more powerful? What if I was more wealthy? What if I was more in control? What if I got my way more often? I mean, doesn't that sound kind of okay? I mean, right? And maybe this sense deep down inside of us that maybe my perspectives are better than others. Maybe my way is better than others. A bit of superiority, if we were to be honest, is within each one of us to some degree or another. So this idea of empire or kingdom is not just some thing of, of history. This is something we have to watch out for right now. In fact, as Megan said earlier, our hearts are absolutely breaking for Buffalo and for people of color all over our country who once again have to see people die simply because of the color of their skin. This assailant, this misguided young 18-year-old who got sucked into this black hole of the World Wide Web and to terrible, terrible things, it, it, it pricked this sense of superiority about his Caucasian race. 
And so he drove 200 miles to execute people of color in our own country. It's not the first time, it won't be the last time. And so our hearts break for our black friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters who are once again having to bear the consequence of kingdom and empire and power and violence. And we see that in places of our world today. You look at Saudi Arabia, you look at what Russia is doing, it's still here. Even though thankfully it's not as prevalent as it was throughout the course of human history, we're trying to move past kingdom, we're trying to move past empire, but it still shows up. And then you look at the life of Jesus and you, and you look at the life of Jesus as someone who's a victim of kingdom his entire life. In fact, the Christmas story is about this child being a victim of empire and kingdom from birth. He was born in humiliation. He was born in subjugation. He was born into poverty. He was born oppressed by the Roman Empire. And he lived his entire life oppressed by the Roman Empire. Jesus was a victim of kingdom. In fact, he was, he was murdered by the Roman Empire. He was murdered by kingdom who unjustly arrested him, unjustly tried him, unjustly condemned him, him to death. And he died a torturous death on a cross over six hours. I mean, if there's anyone in the annals of human history that should be against kingdom, it's Jesus. Born, living, and dying a victim of kingdom. So why in the world, when Jesus tells us to focus on one thing, why would he say focus on kingdom? Why would he say focus on kingdom? I'm gonna tell you why, that's why you showed up today. Jesus has us focused on kingdom because he wants to turn the whole concept of kingdom upside down. Jesus is a guy who's turning everything upside down. I mean, he turned every convention upside down. And so when Jesus talks about kingdom, which he does his entire ministry, you could argue the entire focus of Jesus' ministry was about kingdom. He's establishing a kingdom that is unlike anything the world has ever seen. He's establishing a kingdom that is completely turned upside down. In fact, when he's arrested and tried before Pontius Pilate, this political leader, the governor of the Roman kingdom empire, Jesus makes this point. He says, Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight, but my kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus is being very clear. He told Pontius Pilate, yes, I'm a king, but I'm a kingdom of a completely, I'm a king of a completely different kingdom. My kingdom is upside down. Everything you see about kingdom in my kingdom, it's exactly the opposite. In two key ways. One, the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. Jesus makes it very clear here, right? He is talking to, to Pontius Pilate and says, listen, you might wanna crucify me because I'm some threat, but I'm no threat. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a totally different thing. And my disciples aren't gonna fight. The kingdom of God is not one we fight for with swords and weapons. We just simply don't. In fact, you might recall when Peter was arrested, when Jesus was arrested, Peter, one of the disciples, took out a sword to try to take off a soldier's head. And Jesus says, first of all, you're a terrible aim. You just got the ear and I'll heal that. Thank you very much. Work on that. Next, this isn't a battle that we fight with swords. This isn't a battle that we fight with weapons. This isn't a battle that we fight with violence. Jesus says, my kingdom is not a political kingdom. Now listen, some of you aren't gonna like this part, but you know, you're kind of stuck. <laughs> you can walk out. You won't, you're better than that. So many times, 
Politicians and political parties. So many times governments over the course of human history have attached God to their political desire. They've attached God to their political ambition. It happens all the time, happens almost every time. And listen, if you wanna get somebody riled up, if you wanna get somebody giving money or, or giving you votes, attach your political propensities with the name of God. Tie the kingdom of heaven with your political kingdom and you will get people riled up. We see that happening in American life all the time. But fortunately for us, elections only come up every single day in America. So it's always, it, it's always, we're using God's name to move forward a political kingdom. When Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not a political kingdom. It is not. It is not of this world. And that's hard for us to get our heads around sometimes because listen, sometimes we get passionate about our political party and we get passionate about our political candidate, which is fine. Politics are, are necessary, I guess. <laughs> but don't attach God's name to your candidate and don't attach God's name to your political party. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is not about power. It is not about conquest. It is not about fighting, war, violence. It's not about politics or political parties. It's not about us winning and others losing. It's not about taking anything back, a country or a whatever. It is about something entirely different and entirely, as Jesus says, not of this world. But I'm telling you, for the last 2,000 years, the name of Jesus has been attached to earthly kingdoms, earthly empires, earthly conquests, earthly political powers, including our own country. The kingdom of God language is used to promote political parties, political ambitions, and some of the most terrible treatment of human beings that I have seen. The misuse of the kingdom of God still happens all the time today, and we as followers of Christ have got to say, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. If you're a politician of a political party, great. You may or may not get my vote, great. But don't you dare attach the kingdom of heaven or Jesus to what you're doing. Don't you dare. In fact, Carissa last week made it very clear the kingdom of heaven is not about rising to power. It is exactly the opposite. Matthew 18, 4, so anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Completely opposite kingdom. It is not a political kingdom. In the same way, the kingdom of God is not a religious kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a religious kingdom. And this is where people get, you know, very confused. Well, you know, wait a minute. We're talking about God here. How can we talk about God and the kingdom of God without thinking it's a religious kingdom? I'm telling you, and listen, I've been pulpit pounding this for years and nobody listens. This is not a religious thing that Jesus started. It is simply not. Jesus, in fact, tried to free people from a religious paradigm. He, he tried to say time and time again, you are stuck in religion. I need to get you out. In fact, Jesus specifically talks about the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. The disciples are still confused after living with Jesus for three years. They're still confused. They still think Jesus wants more religion from them. And Jesus says, I don't. Jesus said to his disciples, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful religious observation. Now, let me be clear. Jesus never said, stop observing your religion. He never said that. In fact, he said to the Jews who were very religiously observant, he said to the Jews, hey, what you're doing is fine. If you want to adhere to the Old Testament commandments, that's fine. I'm not going to stop you. If you want to, you know, tithe, give 10% of your spice drawer, 
I'm not gonna stop you. Jesus said, it looks kind of silly, but I'm not gonna stop you. If you wanna obey all these things, fine. If you wanna have all the dietary laws and religious laws and religious ceremonies, fine. Jesus never says I'm against that, but he says there's something far better that I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to the kingdom of heaven. I'm not calling you to religious adherence. In fact, even in the Old Testament, God made it very clear, I'm not really a big fan of all your religious adherence. This is strong language God uses in Amos chapter five, verse 21, hang on. God says to all of this religious practice, I hate your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise, I will not listen. God is, is telling the, the, these religiously devout Jews at the time, he's saying, listen, I'm looking at all your religious ceremonies and you got it all dialed in. All of these commands of the Old Testament, yet you're taking Saturdays off and yet you have these, and yes, you have these worship things and yes, you have these offerings to me. And um, you know, yes, you have your dietary laws and rules and regulations and you're, you're thinking you check all these boxes that somehow your heart's aligned with mine. God says, I know your heart. You're not loving each other. You're not loving your neighbor. You're not welcoming the immigrants and refugees. I know your heart. Your heart is not a heart of love and I'm not interested in your religious practice. I'm simply not interested. Now, some of us today might kind of need a little bit of that same welcome call. call uh, welcome, no, uh, welcome, uh, something call, wake up call. We might need that wake up call today. Because we might think, well, what God really wants is God wakes up on a Sunday, I'm being facetious, and he goes, oh, I hope everybody comes to church today. I can't wait. I want them to come to church and I want them to praise me. I need praise. I need their praise. I need their devotion. I need their adoration. I'm so weak and so incomplete. I need people to show up to religious services and give me adoration. I need people to adore me and worship me and praise me. And then if I'm satisfied enough, I'll give them some goodies that they pray for. That's the religious paradigm Billions of people, billions of people are trapped in that. Billions. And God says, I want you free from that. Uh, let me just put it in, in a very, very plain way. If we think God is really interested in, in millions of people showing up to worship services on Sunday to make him feel good about being praised, rethink that. He's not interested. He's not interested. If we think God is interested in how devoutly we perform our religious ceremonies, did we pray right? Did we handle God's word right? Did we worship appropriately? And I'm telling you, all of these dumb worship wars and people commenting on how people do this, do we think God, oh, you better get it right. You better get that song right. You better get that volume right. You better handle that word of God right. It better be darn accurate. Do we think he's interested in that? We need to rethink that. If we think God is interested in, in us getting the doctrines right about him, that he's up there saying, you know, there's 412,000 things about me and you better get them right. Oh, you're missing, you know, 6,412. You got that thing wrong. You better get that thing right. I mean, who, who are we to think that we can get things right about God very often? He is the eternal, invisible creator God. And yes, we have pieces that we see of him from creation and pieces that we see of him from the word of God and pieces that we see of him in the life of Jesus. But we know virtually nothing about God. Can we just own that? We know virtually nothing about God. 
except the glimmers we get through Jesus, which are fantastic, and his word and creation, which are fantastic, and we'll take every glimmer we can get, but he's the eternal God. Do we really think God is interested in us getting it all right? But I'm telling, telling you, man, the arguments that the religious world gets into about well, this and this and this and judging each other and you're wrong and it's exhausting. Do we really think that's what God is interested in? Do we really think God is interested in us judging the behavior of the world, that God is really interested in everybody behaving appropriately and having their moral life all dialed in and all of their choices all dialed in and that's what he really wants? Do we really think that? God is saying, listen, I'm not interested. What I'm interested in is the kingdom of heaven. I'm interested in our hearts aligning. I'm interested in our values aligning so that what I care about, you can care about. And, and if what God cares about, we care about, then some very good things are gonna happen. That's when life gets into focus. That's when there's a clarity about things. And we can look through you know, sort of the, the, the lens of the Sermon on the Mount and we can say, okay, wow, this is incredible. This is God's heart and I want my heart aligned with God's heart. And that's what I want my life to be about. It's really an incredible journey. So in order for us to understand the kingdom of heaven, we need to understand it is not a political kingdom and it's not a religious kingdom. So what is it? What is it? In order for us to understand the kingdom, the very thing Jesus wants to focus first on, we have to understand who is the king and what does he want. It's pretty simple. If we wanna know about kingdom, who is the king and what does he want? If you're in church, you should get this question right. It, the answer begins with a J and ends with an Jesus. Who's the king? Jesus. One of you got it right, even after I told you the answer. Who's the king? Jesus. All right, there you go. He is the king. All right, so when we talk about a kingdom, who is the king and what does he want? Jesus is the king. So how did Jesus become a king, because keep in mind, he was born a peasant, and now he is a king. So how did that happen? Ephesians 1.20. The mighty power of God raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only the authority in this world, but also in the world to come. Pretty clear, right? Jesus is king because the father raised him from the dead. He was born a peasant under the Roman kingdom. He, he died, murdered by the Roman kingdom. All of the evils of religion pressed down on Jesus. All of the evils of government and politics pressed down on Jesus, put him to death. We want nothing to do with him. This is a world of politics. This is a world of power. This is a world of religion. Jesus wants people free from that. He's dead, and they killed him. On the third day, the power of God says, uh, no, you don't, raised him from the dead. He is now seated above every authority, above every religious authority, above every political authority, authority, presiding over a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that is above all other kingdoms. That is King Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus, seated now at the right hand of the Father, makes him king. And as Revelation says, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's above everything, everywhere. So let's take a quick look at our king. Who is this king? Keep in mind, it's an upside down kingdom, right? So we look at Jesus and what do we see? We see someone who is humble. We see someone who is a selfless servant. 
We see someone who has a heart for people who are most in need and then runs to them to meet that need. And we see Jesus, a king who is an activist, building a better world for everyone, not just for the elite, but for everyone. This is a different kind of king. For those of you who might have studied history or read history, do you know any king, queen, monarch who is humble, a selfless servant, a heart for people most in need, who is an activist, building a better world for everyone equally? Do you know one king, queen, monarch in human history that's like Jesus? Not one. It's a completely upside down kingdom. How about the death of Jesus? Our king gave his life. Our king was opposed by the political kingdoms and they put him to death. Our king was opposed by the religious kingdoms and they put him to death. Our king was sacrificial. He looked over the city of Jerusalem. His heart broke for them. He wept for them because he knew they were gonna miss it. He goes in there and boldly preaches the kingdom of heaven, love and grace and mercy and kindness and humanitarianism where God's love is equally poured out upon everyone, everywhere. Let's lift each other up. Let's serve each other. Political empire said no. Religious empire said no. Put him to death. He sacrificed himself. He's a different kind of king. What about the resurrection? The resurrection put Jesus as the victor. Uh, This has been called Christus Victor. He is the victor over the political kingdoms that put him to death. He's the victor over the religious kingdoms that put him to death. He is now the king of kings and lord of lords for everyone in all the earth. That's a different kind of king. He is equally for everyone in all the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race, the rich and the poor, wink and a nod, especially the poor. That's who this raised king of kings is all about. A different kind of king. A different kind of king. So how do we put that king first? Jesus says focus first on the kingdom. That means we focus first on the king. How do we focus on Jesus? How do we put our primary focus on Jesus? Now, I was raised in the, in the dark ages of the 80s and the 90s. And so um, uh, the church life back then was actually pretty simple and actually pretty terrifying for me as a, as a young kid growing up in youth group in the 80s and the 90s. I was told if you wanna put Jesus first, you have to spend more time in prayer, more time in, in the Bible, and more time in church. That was the formula. I hate to oversimplify it, but it was oversimplified. So I was raised in this kind of religious environment. A lot of great people doing a lot of great things, but they basically looked at all of us and said, hey, listen, if you wanna put Jesus first, that means more minutes in the word, more minutes in prayer, more minutes in church. And I tried and I tried and I tried. I did pretty well with the Bible. I kind of liked the Bible, was drawn to the Bible. Still like the Bible, spent about 15 hours a week in it. Uh, Get paid for it too, which thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. so I've always been drawn to studying the Bible and teaching the Bible, it's great, but, but prayer has been a struggle for me. This head's pretty busy. And so the idea of, of sitting in solitude for an extended period of time and just focusing on prayer and focusing on Jesus and putting him first by more minutes in prayer, I have struggled with my entire life. I'm telling you, and I wish it was different. I got about three good minutes in me, <laughs> like three. And, it, and when I try to focus, my head starts darting squirrel, squirrel, shiny thing. And I just, and then, but back in the day, 80s and 90s, I felt guilty about that because I wasn't putting Jesus first. You know, or more time in church. Every time the church door is open, you gotta be there. That's putting Jesus first. And, and I had this grace awakening, um, which is, you know, I'm so glad happened to me. And I got to raise my kids in a, a grace-filled environment. 
and uh, hopefully have a wonderful church that's a grace-filled environment, I began to think of Jesus first in a different way. I, I, I now think putting Jesus first means simply recognizing he is the foundation upon which our life is built. He's the foundation. That's what it means to put Jesus first. He's the foundation. We build our life upon him. So, you know, right here and right now, let's pay attention to the foundation under our feet. Right now, you are sitting on a chair that is sitting on floor that is on a foundation made of concrete. Aren't you happy about that? Because of the concrete foundation under your feet, we get to enjoy this building and enjoy this auditorium and enjoy everything that happens in here. Let's take a few minutes and really appreciate the foundation under our feet. It's kind of cool, right? It's pretty solid. They did, they did a good job. But then we're living life on the foundation that was set before us. Jesus is called the foundation. Jesus, more specifically, is called the cornerstone. We build everything upon Jesus. And so putting Jesus first means a recognition that our whole life is built upon Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean more minutes in prayer, more minutes in the Bible, and more minutes in church. Some of you are saying, I wish I was told that, you know, 50 minutes ago. But it means a life built upon Jesus. And yes, sometimes we pray and specifically focus on the foundation of our life, and that's a good thing. And sometimes we might open the Word of God and spend some time in the Bible and learn more about Jesus, the foundation upon which our life is built, and that's a good thing. And sometimes we go to church, and we honor Him, and we rally around the cause of Christ, and that's a good thing. But it's really our whole life being built on the foundation of Jesus. Let me just show you a few things about what that might mean. And take one or two of these and, and maybe add these to your world and, and see if that does you some good in terms of putting Jesus first. Uh, the first one is just pretty simple, believe. It's belief. Believe that Jesus is the full expression of God. That belief is biblical salvation. When we believe, Jesus reveals God. That's biblical salvation. Forever through the course of human history, people were wondering who God is. Is he mad at me or is he gracious? And how can I be blessed by him? And is there life after death? And everybody's been trying to figure this out. And God says, let me show you Jesus. He is the full expression of my nature. When we believe Jesus is the full expression of the Father God, that is salvation. That's what it is to build our life upon Jesus and to focus on him. It also means Jesus-centered thinking. Jesus-centered thinking. Let me tell you how this kind of goes. For, for many of us, for a lot of us, myself included, some days, you know, you're just living life, and what's the background thinking in our head? The background thinking in our head could be about me. I'm living my life, doing my thing. Well, I'm going here, and how can I get there? And how can I do my thing? And how can I make my day work my way? And how can I get my way done? And how can I be first in line? And how can I get my way here? And how can I get you to believe my way and adhere to my way? And how can I win my, this argument? How can I get ahead at work? So a lot of times we think about us as the background noise in our head. Putting Jesus the King first and focusing on him means we over time start thinking more about kind of what Jesus would do, right? Focusing on his values and his priorities. And so when we're living our lives more with the background thinking of Jesus first, we're approaching a four-way stop and, well, you go first and you go first. And we're approaching a door at a bank. Oh, you go first. I don't know. Whatever. I'm in no rush. Knock stuff out. When we're at home, we're thinking, okay, well, how can I bless my spouse? How can I bless my kids? We're just thinking outwardly. We're not thinking about us. We're thinking about others. That's Christ-centered thinking. Putting King Jesus first means that Jesus is our hero. He's our hero. 
And I think that's what it means to exalt Jesus is he's our hero. And the word hero might be, you know, banded around here and there. Hero is not hitting a home run for a walk-off win at the end of a game. That's not a hero. That's called, take notes, a baseball player. Probably a good one. A hero is someone who sacrifices for the betterment of others. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. He sacrificed himself to elevate the whole world, to know God, to be loved by God, forgiven by God, embraced by God in a new community called the church. Christ-centered thinking means let's read the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, a lot of people, when they want to you know, get to reading the Bible, they might start at the beginning. Don't start at the beginning. I'm commanding you. <laughs> Don't start at the beginning. I, I'm this close to saying, hey, listen, before you start reading the Old Testament, you gotta go to a class first, right? Uh, because you start reading the Old Testament, there's confusion and all kinds of things going on where you're wondering, that doesn't seem to align with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then, when you're done reading John, I wanna urge you, only then can you then reread Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Just let's get ourselves Jesus-centered by reading the Gospels. Then once we get that down, we can probably start reading the edges. It means that we honor Jesus the King in worship. Jesus does not need our worship, but we need to worship Jesus. When we gather together and sing a few songs about Jesus, that helps us, not him. Jesus is not going, yes, me, me, more of me. You need to worship me. No, he's fine, right? But it's good for us to say, Jesus, we are putting you first. Seek first the kingdom, we are seeking first the king. It means that we're a Christ-centered community and we gather together, not to just say, okay, God, I'm doing a religious duty. God says, I don't care about your religious duties, but we get together and we say, listen, together we're a family of faith. Together we're gonna encourage each other to grow and together we're gonna advance the cause of Christ. We're gonna advance the cause of Christ. We're gonna align our heart and we're gonna align our actions as a church with the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus did, we're going to do. What Jesus taught, we're going to teach. That's what we're doing together as a family of faith. That's what it means to put Jesus first. Who is the king? Jesus, and what does he want? Give me two minutes. What does the king want? If we're gonna know what the kingdom is, we need to know who the king is, that's Jesus, and we need to know what he wants. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of books have been written about the kingdom of heaven. What are the values of the kingdom of heaven, the priorities of the kingdom of heaven? I think the apostle Paul, God bless his soul, nailed it in a phrase. What is the kingdom of heaven? He nails it in a phrase. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the spirit of God. Who is the king? Jesus. What does the king want? He wants us to live a life of goodness and peace and joy. Where can we be better people? He wants us to live a life of goodness, so where can we be better, right? Not to please God, not to get something from God, but where is our life maybe not quite aligned with the life that Jesus wants us to lead? And how can we become a good person? By the power of God, by the example of Jesus, right? How can we become a good person? 
is the way I treat my spouse good? If not, focus on Jesus, align your heart with Jesus, treat your spouse better. Is the way you talk to your kids good? And you might admit, well, sometimes I get a little sideways. Okay, God is patient, understands, forgives, great. Let's look at the example of Jesus. Jesus-centered thinking, how can we treat our kids more aligned with the way Jesus treated children? Is the way I do my job good? If not, let's work on aligning that. Is the way I manage my emotions when things go wrong good? If not, how can I manage that? Is the way I'm mindful of others and selfless good? Or can I work on that by the grace of God, the power of God, and by the encouragement of one another? Is the way I handle money good? Are my motives good? The kingdom of heaven is goodness. Let's walk a journey of goodness. Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our example. We have the spirit of God. We have each other, right? We can be good people over time. The kingdom of heaven is a life of peace. The kingdom of heaven is a life of joy. Let me be clear. It doesn't mean everything that happens in life will be peaceful. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in life will be joyful. But what the apostle Paul said very clearly, very succinctly, the kingdom of heaven is goodness, peace, and joy. And that peace and joy can be yours right now. The kingdom of heaven is not the place we go to when we die. There's that, and we're grateful. But the kingdom of heaven is right here and right now. And if you're going through a season in life where you are not feeling at peace because some things are going on in in your life that are a struggle, your family life is a struggle, your financial life is a struggle, maybe your work life is a struggle, your health is a struggle, your mental health is a struggle, listen, I understand that Jesus went through all of that himself, every bit of it. He went through every bit of it. God promises you a peace and a joy that is a foundation under some of the chaos in your life, which means as you struggle, you struggle with Jesus, with you and in you. As you struggle, you struggle with a family of faith that walks alongside you called the church. As you struggle, you can have that deeper foundation under your feet that God is with you, he never leaves you, his love is always on you, he forgives you of everything, past, present, and future, you are good with God, now and always, and you can have that deep sense of peace, that deep sense of calm, and that deep sense of joy. And, and, and that, that joy word is kind of interesting because we don't use it in normal life. We never use the word joy outside of church. Joy is a purely church word. If I was out there in the street and said, how are you doing? And you say, joyful, I think something is really, really wrong with you. But biblical joy means a calm pleasure underneath it all. Did you get that? Biblical joy, kingdom of heaven joy, is a calm pleasure underneath it all. I met with a friend this week who's really, really struggling. Loss of a family member that is chewing him up. And he was able at the end of the conversation to put a half smile on his face, even with tears in his eyes, half smile on his face, tears in his eyes. Thank God that he is with me. Thank God that he is with me. That's that calm, deep pleasure, even when life gets chaotic, even when life is a struggle, even when they're suffering. And we get that now. The kingdom of heaven is now. In fact, we're gonna close in a prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. I'm just gonna read a part of it and just in the quietness of your own heart, you can recognize this and admit this and live into that, that the kingdom of heaven with King Jesus at the center of our life and the kingdom of heaven full of goodness, peace, and joy can be lived right here and right now.
Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, your name is exalted above every name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we look at the, the prayer that Jesus asks us to pray, a prayer that is focused on the kingdom of heaven. And we look at the teaching of Jesus just a few verses later where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be given to you. So God, we wanna seek first the kingdom of heaven, which means we seek first the king, King Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who was resurrected from the dead, who resurrected under the evil of the religious kingdoms and under the evil of political kingdoms, he was raised in victory. He is the risen King Jesus. We put him first. He's the foundation upon which we build our lives. We wanna think more about him. We wanna place him as the hero of our lives. We wanna read about him in the gospels and learn about him at church and be a Christ-centered, gospel-centered community of grace and love with Jesus first. And then God, we want the kind of kingdom that, that he desires and prays for and gave his life for, that we would live in a kingdom of goodness, peace, and joy. And for some of us, we might confess that uh, our lives are not very good and, and we may not be behaving very well and there's things that we need to change. I pray that your love and your grace and your kindness and your forgiveness would overwhelm us, that we would see the goodness of Jesus and by your spirit, and by your word, and by the encouragement of one another, we might, over time, live more and more like Jesus. And that we might experience peace and joy, even when things in our life may not be peaceful or joyful, there can be this deep, calm pleasure in life because you are with us, you love us, you never leave us. In your eyes, we are perfect in your sight, you are always for us and never against us, and so we believe your grace is upon us, and we're comforted by your presence, by the presence of one another, and the vision of the kingdom of heaven established here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.